You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Matta. I have a degree in art history as well as a channel or a page, whatever you want to call it, on TikTok, maybe you've heard of it, where I discuss all things royal, past, present, British, or otherwise. Uh, And today is one of those fortuitous occasions where my podcast on art history, which you are now listening to, and my interest in the royals converge, um, because we are going to be talking about a famous royal woman from history who has, I don't know, made a couple headlines this this week, for sure. Before we get into that, um, I have a few housekeeping notes. Some of these are the usual, your reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, share it with a friend, all that good stuff. But I'm also very happy to announce that if you are listening to this podcast from my TikTok, you know, if that's how you found me originally, I have another podcast offering that I will be appearing on regularly, which you might be interested. Um, If you haven't already heard or listened to this show called Lady Audacity, um, it used to be run by the fabulous Meredith Constant, um, who is another TikTok creator who discusses the royals, as well as uh, the lovely Alex, who is on Instagram at DuchessMMGrace. They were co-hosts. Meredith is taking an indefinite hiatus as she is working on something super, super special. Um, So I'm stepping in as a host of the Lady Audacity podcast. This is, I mean, what can you say? It's it's a no bullshit show where we talk about royal news, do deep dives into the royal media, um, the history of the royals, things like that, particularly the British royal family. Um, and we break down all of the, the silliness uh, about the royal family, royal news, things that they've done that we may or may not agree with. Um, and it's just, it's an all around good time if you're not, you know, one of the people who takes the royal family so seriously that you think they can do no wrong. I will leave it there. Um, But yes, go listen to me on the Lady Audacity podcast. That's Audacity-E-A. Anywhere you get your podcasts, most major podcast networks, you should be able to find me and Alex. So that is very exciting. On my personal end of things, I have recently launched my own Substack newsletter that you can get straight to your inbox. Um, It's called The Fascinator. And that will focus mostly on the royals as well, as well as occasionally some regular culture moments, things that are happening in the wider world. Um, So I'm so excited about that. And if you are looking for ways to consume my writing um, a little farther, go check that out. It is at um, Matta of Fact, which is my TikTok handle, (laughs) no underscores, dot substack.com. Again, the newsletter itself is called The Fascinator. Um, It's also linked on all of my personal social media pages. The Fascinator is a reader-supported publication, so while there will be free installments of it every week, um, there will also be extra additional content for people who are willing to pledge a monthly donation to support me in my content-making ventures um, and get a little bonus content out of that as well. So very, very excited about both of those new offerings to my personal content landscape. I will link both Lady Audacity and The Fascinator in the episode description for you. Um, And let's get on with the art history. That's what you're here for. Um, If you're new to art of history, the premise here is very simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us some story from the past. And I'll let you know what that's going to be today in just a moment. 
I'm also going to be posting artwork that we'll be discussing in the episode um, and some supplemental images over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. While you're there, go ahead and give me a follow. It will only save you time for future episodes. And of course, I will guide us through a look at the piece together as we explore the bigger picture behind it. And what a bigger picture there is behind our artwork today, because today's episode was not on my original like schedule of, of episodes for this year, um, but with the much anticipated epic film Napoleon coming from Ridley Scott this month and generating some buzz in the historical sphere, um, I thought it was time to revisit the French Empire, which we have hit before. Oh my gosh, now I have to find the episode, of course. <laughs> I don't know why I don't do these things before sitting down to record. It is season two, episode four of Art of History. The episode is titled HRH, The Duchess of Baltimore. If you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend it um, because I wrote it. <laughs> but so today we're going to be revisiting Napoleonic France. And I will just say, I have not seen the new Napoleon film, um, but given some of the reviews that I've read, painting it as like painfully historically inaccurate and for no good reason, I'm also hearing, um, I think I'll just wait for that particular film to be on streaming. Um, but also to say, I'm not here to give you like a complete takedown or a blow by blow on what Ridley Scott got wrong in that film. Um, although I doubt he would care given that he has said that historians raising concerns over it should get a life, but I digress. <laughs> but what I do want to do is shine a light today on the relationship that forms the backbone um, of some of the imagery in the film and in the telling of Napoleon's biography that Ridley Scott is attempting in this movie. And that is of the emperor's relationship with his wife, Josephine. One moment from the film that I've seen recreated, I've seen it on my social media, people sharing images from the film, um, because it mirrors a famous painting from art history um, completed in 1807 by Jacques-Louis David, who has also been discussed on this podcast before. Um, that is, of course, the coronation scene of Napoleon and Josephine. But that's not where my attention is going to be focused today. Instead, we are going to tell the story of Napoleon and Josephine, mostly of Josephine, I will say, <laughs> through a much lesser known painting, one that I don't think is even currently on view. Um, and that is a painting that the National Gallery of Scotland, where this piece is in storage, calls an extremely unusual portrayal of the young Josephine, later wife of Napoleon Bonaparte and Empress of France. And they're right, this is an extremely unusual painting of Josephine, given the portraits that would come out of her later and, you know, all of the grandeur of her that, that we think of when we when we think of Napoleon and Josephine. Okay, the painting. <laughs> it's called Josephine and the Fortune Teller from 1837, and it purports to show Josephine the girl well before she was shaped into Napoleon's, you know, great love, <laughs> this love that would um, come up against an empire and his glittering empress. So Josephine herself is who we're going to be focusing on today. She was born Marie-Joseph Rose Tacher de la Pagerie on the Caribbean island of Martinique. Um, she was born into a French colonial family who owned a sugarcane plantation there. Um, you will notice Josephine is not in her name. Uh, that is not a typo. Um, she was not known as Josephine until much later in her life when her future husband, um, Napoleon, actually bestowed that nickname on her. She was actually known as Rose throughout her childhood. 
Rose would have been considered Creole by her own contemporary like definition of the word as it existed in the 18th century, which referred to a white person um, of Spanish or French like background who was born in the Caribbean. Josephine was dark-haired and dark-eyed, and she was not considered beautiful at all. <laughs> That's another thing that she has in common with some other female subjects of this podcast. But she was referred to as, you know, plump and, and pleasing to the eye, and she was widely acknowledged as graceful and charming. Now, as the painting Josephine and the Fortune Teller might hint to you, um, this young woman apparently had her future predicted while she was still living in Martinique um, by a local West Indian fortune teller when she was 10 years old. And that's where our story with her is going to pick up today. This West Indian woman allegedly foretold that Josephine would marry young, um, albeit unhappily. She would become widowed and then marry again to become, quote, more than a queen but with the caveat that it would only be for a short time. Now, there is an additional part to this prediction that was later told to one of Josephine's lady-in-waiting that um, often gets left out, but that included that Josephine would also meet her death in a popular commotion. Uh, that is the only part of the <laughs> prediction that would not come true. Spoiler alert. And I find that detail, which doesn't get discussed very often, kind of interesting, just given the time that we're operating in here. Josephine was born in 1763, so at the time she visited this fortune teller, she was 10. We would have been around 1773. The French Revolution has not kicked off yet, but it seems plausible that this fortune teller might have been picking up on some rumblings in, in the European courts, um, you know, of revolutions maybe coming down the line. I don't know. So that's interesting that that is associated with Josephine and ostensibly before the official reign of terror has even kicked off. The artist behind this piece, Scottish-born David Wilkie, is rendering this scene of Josephine and the fortune teller well after her death has actually occurred. The painting is made in 1837. Josephine herself passes away in 1815. Another spoiler alert for you. Um, Wilkie apparently became familiar with this story as early as 1806, which is after Josephine becomes crowned as empress. However, there is evidence from her life that she told people this story before she became empress. So in her diaries and memoirs, it's present, um, as well as accounts from Napoleon and her daughter that that kind of like hint that this was a story she told them over and over and over again, um, even before she became crowned as empress. The story also appeared in the memoirs of Napoleon, which appeared in 1829. So the painting itself, it shows a young Josephine who is elegantly dressed in white silk, seated at a small circular table. Her right hand is being pulled across that table where a fortune teller is examining it. She seems to kind of be in the middle of proclaiming to the room the secrets that are held in Josephine's palm. Now, the other central figure who is half obscured by the seated Josephine represents Josephine's mother. Her position with her hands on her daughter's shoulders or almost on her neck, <laughs> in the case of her left hand, um, as well as her kind of smug, satisfied expression, they tell us that she is pleased with what the fortune teller is proclaiming. This is in contrast to Josephine herself, whose expression is a bit harder to read. I read it as being a little bit more demure. If the mother's expression is telling us like, see, I told you, this is amazing. Like you're gonna do good things, big things. Josephine's is kind of saying like, oh, mother, you know, 
that's we don't have to no it's fine don't don't make a big fuss over me that's kind of what i'm getting out of their facial expressions um but there's there's a little bit of you know enigma in them at the same time it does appear that the mother is ready to launch her daughter out in the world to secure the future that has been foretold for her However, the figure of the mother seems to be somewhat of an invention by the artist David Wilkie. Not that Josephine didn't have a mother, but the one she did have might not have been as supportive of the fortune teller's proclamation as we see here. One of Josephine's biographers writing um, on Martinique actually in the mid 20th century tells us that in reality, Josephine was punished by her family for visiting the fortune teller. So it's something that she did on her own. When she returned, she was allegedly locked in a shack and given only bread and water for eight days. Now, of course, these stories being passed to us through nothing but, I think, verbal, you know, passing of these stories, the fortune teller story itself could very well just be an invention by Josephine. But it it appears so often throughout her life um, that it became part of her story in the way she was represented in history. Also appearing across her life is this interest in kind of the occult and, and divination. That's something that we'll see a couple more times across the episode. Now, the fortune teller herself in the painting is dressed in this patterned head wrap and a sumptuous red cloak. She's not an entirely positive figure, I don't think you can say. Um, her face is half in shadow and her expression, again, it's hard to read. This is a figure that David Wilkie actually executed numerous pencil studies for um, to get her facial features apparently exactly as he wanted them. Now, in popular tellings of the story from Josephine's lifetime, the fortune teller is described as a black woman, although in this depiction too, I think her race is more ambiguous. Her complexion certainly isn't as dark as the slaves who are on the right side of the canvas. And those figures representing slaves, uh, one of whom is holding a tray of glasses and apparently like listening in with rapt interest on his face. I think the inclusion of those slaves is a way of alluding to Josephine's status. Um, even though her birth was not illustrious by European standards, the family still presided over a commercial enterprise and yes, owned slaves. Now, to a contemporary viewer taking in this interpretation of the scene by David Wilkie, the slaves also would have added a touch of the exotic, um, something to transport you to another world if you were viewing this in Edinburgh or, you know, across Europe. The fortune teller herself would have also lent that touch of the exotic in her patterned textiles. Now, the artist David Wilkie, he was born in Scotland in November 1785 in the village of Pitlessie in Fife. Um, he was the son of a rural minister and he began his formal artistic training at the Trustees Academy in Edinburgh when he was 15 years old. Now, during his early career, he was fascinated by what we call genre scenes, which are depictions of ordinary people just doing ordinary things. Um, and he would apparently, quote unquote, haunt fairs and marketplaces, sketching any and everything that kind of struck him, um, no matter how humble it was to other people. By the time he was 20, Wilkie had already, quote, demonstrated his remarkable ability to portray contemporary events and was known for his genre paintings as well as historical scenes. His self-portrait from around this time, and incidentally, the time that Josephine was going to be crowned empress, shows a fashionable young man. Um, he has like this tousled hairdo and also, quote, confirms his skills as an accomplished portrait painter. 
Wilkie would move from Edinburgh to London in 1805, where he would become a full member of the Royal Academy just a few years later in 1811. He was appointed painter to King William IV in 1830 and knighted in 1836. He would become known for his magnificent portraits of nobility from all across Europe and would continue on as a painter to Queen Victoria after William IV's death. Now, this painting of Josephine and the fortune teller was commissioned by the English banker and MP John Abel Smith in 1837, which again is well after Josephine's death. And I know you don't know too much about her yet, um, but we will return to her biography in just a moment. But first, I was thinking about why a man, there's not much in his biography, John Abel Smith. Um, his son would go on to become, I think, president of the Bank of England. But, you know, he, he seems like a pretty straight-laced guy. So I was kind of thinking about why he might have requested this subject for a painting from David Wilkie. Um, and I come back to that feeling of exoticism as maybe a reason that he is interested in this story. Um, the intriguing facial expressions on the central female figures, I think, kind of lend themselves to that theory. Like, he's looking for something to transport him. Um, we did discuss in the episode, um, the Duchess of Baltimore episode, which follows, if you haven't listened to it, you should, um, it follows the life of Napoleon's American-born sister-in-law. Um, but we, we talked about how markets outside of France just ate up the drama of the Napoleonic court. Um, Napoleon and Josephine's relationship would have been no different. It was it was like a soap opera <laughs> to people, to the British and to Americans. So the high drama of that kind of starts here in, in this episode from Josephine's life where she's getting this proclamation um, and getting her destiny foretold on the island of Martinique. There also might have been a moral message to this painting um, for this scene to be depicted the way that it was. As remember, the palm reader was said to have not only predicted Josephine's ultimate rise, but also her fall from power. And while there's no real evidence that Josephine had like a pushy mother to this degree, um, the, the one in the painting then, and the girl who is giving in to her machinations, they might be meant to be read as a cautionary tale one that is warning the viewer against what can befall a woman when an unchecked pursuit of power is taken up. I will leave you to think about those possible messages as we return to the biography of Josephine herself. So the young Josephine attended a convent school for about four years, beginning after she met that fortune teller when she was around 10 or 11 years old. Her time at school was going to be cut short, however, leaving her with severe educational deficiencies but nevertheless, the young Josephine's quote-unquote extraordinary destiny was about to begin. This was set in motion, not as you might think, with her own engagement to Napoleon, we're not there yet, <laughs> but actually with a series of misfortunes that befell her family. First, hurricanes damaged the family's plantation, forcing them to move into the second floor of the very unglamorous, and I'm imagining sticky, um, Sukari, the building that housed the boiling vats of sugarcane on the plantation. Then, a letter arrived requesting the hand of one of Josephine's younger sisters, Catherine Desiree, in an advantageous marriage to the French Viscount de Beauharnais. There was only one problem with this plan. Catherine Desiree had died of tuberculosis in the fall of 1777. Evidently, I think after the proposal had been made, but before news of it could reach mainland Europe. Um, but as sometimes happens in these noble matches, think 
um, Catherine of Aragon switching from the Prince of Wales to Henry VIII, um, it was decided that the younger Joseph or the older, I'm sorry, Josephine would simply replace her sister on the marriage market. Um, and after all, I think given the family's misfortunes on the plantation, they would have been eager to marry one of their daughters off, um, maybe secure a position for her before things got worse. So at 16 years old, Josephine made the journey to Paris by ship to meet her then 19-year-old fiancé. He was Alexander, the Viscount de Beauharnais. Now, if you've read a Wikipedia entry on Josephine or seen her mentioned in history books, this is where the name she's normally addressed with comes from. She's normally called Josephine de Beauharnais. Although, interestingly, <laughs> that name is not something she would have gone by herself because, remember, she... I know I'm calling her Josephine, that's for simplicity, but she has not yet been given that nickname um, at this point in her life. And the Beauharnais name, once she is Josephine, <laughs> would no longer be attached to her. So it's an interesting little anachronism there. At any rate, her new fiancé, the Viscount de Beauharnais, evidently did not find his new bride remotely acceptable, um, but he went through with the marriage anyway, because I think it was—I think it was supposed to secure him an inheritance if he got married. I think that's why he went through with it, if I'm remembering correctly. But he did think Josephine both uneducated and unrefined. And to be fair, <laughs> she was probably both by the aristocratic standards of the French court of the day. Um, uneducated especially because Josephine's letters from this period are few and far between, possibly because her spelling and handwriting were both so bad that she might have just wanted to avoid the embarrassment of, of corresponding. Now, in contrast, her new husband was worldly, he was sophisticated, and he had a reputation as Paris's best dancer. He was also a serial adulterer. He had several mistresses um, and a suspected several illegitimate children, including one with his longtime mistress named Laurie Longpre. He was also a military man, the Viscount de Beauharnais. He served in the American Revolutionary War, actually, before he got engaged to Josephine under the Count of Rochambeau. Now, also before marrying Josephine in 1779, he joined the court of King Louis XVI when he returned to France. Um, and later in his life, he would actually leverage that position and become of all things, a supporter of the French Revolution. So this guy, he's a bit of a mixed bag, you know, you want to admire him for supporting the revolution, but also he's cheating on our girl Josephine, so we don't like that. Um, he was often away on military campaigns throughout their marriage, although Josephine did bear a son, Eugène, in 1781, and a daughter, Hortense, in 1783. But finally getting fed up with her absentee husband, who at one point abandoned the family for over a year to live with a mistress, um, Josephine went to court and secured a legal separation from him. Um, I think eventually it was a full-blown divorce. Um, it's hard to find like verification on that, on the terminology. But separated legally, that's all you need to know. <laughs> On the Viscount's dime, Josephine and her children now moved to Pentamont Abbey, um, which was known as a refuge for upper-class women who were, quote, disadvantaged by circumstance. Um, the son, Eugène, was then sent to boarding school. Now, at the Abbey, um, Josephine and Hortense would have... I, it's spelled Hortense. I know in French it's Hortense, something like that, but it's it's a, I've got a weird hybrid going on for pronunciation. I, I recognize that. <laughs> But Josephine and her daughter would have developed skills while living at the Abbey that would better serve a noblewoman in upper-crust French society. So that was great for them. 
Josephine returned for a time to Martinique, but she ultimately returned to France, moving into the home of her father-in-law at Fontainebleau. The Viscount de Beauharnais had gone on to be elected a deputy of the nobility to the Estates General of 1789. Um, this is where the French Revolution like really kicks into high gear. <laughs> there, he actually voted in favor of the abolition of feudalism. If you would like a refresher on the discussions of the French Revolution that we've had so far on the podcast, I will direct you to the, I think, second, yeah, the second episode of the show, which talks about the art of Jacques-Louis David, um, who was very active during the French Revolution. Beauharnais also served as president of the National Constituent Assembly in 1791 for two different little spells, and he became one of the Jacobins who gave the order for the arrest of the royal family, Marie Antoinette included, during their attempt to flee in 1791. He was promoted to general in 1792 at the start of the French Revolutionary Wars abroad, and was then appointed commander-in-chief of the Army of the Rhine in 1793. So th this is frustrating. This is what frustrates me about the French Revolution, because you would think that's, that's all very supportive of the cause, right? Wrong, if you're Robespierre. During the 1794 Reign of Terror, you know, when all the people were getting guillotined in Paris, the Viscount de Beauharnais was imprisoned and accused by Robespierre's Committee of Safety of having been derelict of duty as he poorly defended a city that was under his command during a siege um, as he commanded the Army of the Rhine. Josephine, frustratingly, was imprisoned alongside him for, I think, three months, um, despite the fact that they were legally separated, purely because she was associated with him, um, and they were aristocrats, right? So after those three months of imprisonment together, which they were in the prison with some of the worst living conditions um, in France at the time, so that must have been hell on earth, <laughs> like, legitimately, um, but after those three months of imprisonment, Beauharnais was executed by guillotine. This happened on July 23rd, 1794, just five days before the official end of the Reign of Terror. There's actually a story from this time that um, a soldier would come into the barracks or the, the prison and read off the list of names of nobles to go out to be executed. And when he said simply the word Beauharnais, you know, no first name, no Viscount or Viscountess, whatever, it was um, the husband, the Viscount de Beauharnais, who just stood up and walked out. He didn't even question, is it me or is it Josephine? Again, that could be an apocryphal story, but we like to think maybe he came around in those three months and became a better husband during their imprisonment together. I don't know. Josephine would remain in prison for five more days and then she was freed. Although, again, if the reign of terror had not ended when it did, she would likely have shared the same fate as her husband. Um, but Robespierre himself went to the guillotine and put an end to that. So yeah, again, if you would like more on the reign of terror and the French Revolution, um, visit episode two of this podcast, which is called Who Tells Your Story? After the death of her husband, Josephine secured his estate to support herself and her children, um, and she was welcomed into the new post-revolution social circles that were shaping up in upper-class Paris. So you can think of this era in France after the reign of terror has ended um, as something akin to the Roaring Twenties in America, you know, the era of flappers. We had young women, aristocrats mostly, who were suddenly liberated, both politically from imprisonment, like literally, um, and sexually, <laughs> and they celebrated by partying. 
Some of these parties um, that Josephine may have attended were called victims balls, and they were open only to relatives of aristocrats who had been executed during the Reign of Terror. They wore red ribbons around their necks as, quote, reminders of the bloody chop of the blade. Attendees also clothed themselves in scarlet and crimson, and they cut their hair short in the choppy style that exposed the neck to the executioner on your way to the guillotine. So we're taking a really traumatic period of these folks' lives and um, making it making it fun, I guess. I don't know. Everyone can process their trauma the way they need to, I suppose. Josephine at this time was described as slim and elegant, but she apparently had bad teeth, so she rarely smiled. But her abilities as a light and graceful dancer and her fashionable dress, which often showed her bare arms and sometimes um, chest, those did a lot to make her into one of society's most successful hostesses. She may not have been well-educated, but her upbringing on Martinique had instilled a sense of courtesy and decorum, and most importantly, I think, warmth in her. She was described as a very warm person, and that would have seen Josephine through into society. So several strategic connections and even affairs with political figures followed, and it's at one of these gatherings, whether it was actually a victim's ball, as I think it's shown in the movie Napoleon or not, um, we might never know, but... At one gathering of upper-crust French society at this time, she met the 27-year-old Napoleon Bonaparte. Josephine at this time was 33 years old. Napoleon was just kind of a soldier on the rise by now. He was living on, you know, a soldier's pay, and he evidently thought that Josephine was wealthy enough to support him. Um, Spoiler alert, again, she was not. (laughs) But also able to grant him entry into these elite social circles, which she was. Now, the rumor that Josephine had this great income, um, not just from the estate of her dead husband, but from her family on Martinique, that was a rumor that she herself actively encouraged. Um, She often spent money strategically to leverage her lavish lifestyle, but she also had a lifelong overspending problem, and it originated, I think, during this period. She and one of her friends, uh, fellow society fixture Therese Tallien, were said to own 60, 60 wigs between the two of them that ranged from like platinum blonde to brunette and even purple. Napoleon, who was then, again, an ambitious army commander, would have been looking to secure his own financial situation and would make Josephine's bad financial habits a source of conflict between them for the rest of their relationship. So he's he's trying to woo her, but at the same time, I think he's, like, gonna become clued in very quickly that she's maybe not the most responsible person. Nevertheless, he is falling for her, and in a letter to Josephine that December, which is prefaced seven in the morning, which I love... Um, Napoleon wrote, quote, I awake full of you. Your image and the memory of last night's intoxicating pleasures has left no rest to my senses. Sweet and incomparable Josephine, what a bizarre effect you have upon my heart. Are you angry? Do I see you sad? Are you worried? In three hours I shall see you. Meanwhile, mio dolce amor, a thousand kisses, but do not give me any, for they set my blood on fire. So Napoleon clearly infatuated, and by now he has bestowed the nickname that Josephine would carry for the rest of her life upon her. 
As soon as January 1796, Napoleon proposed, and it was actually after this point that he discovered that Josephine had not been forthcoming about her financial situation. (laughs) Nevertheless, he still wanted to marry her, and it was Josephine who actually became furious when she discovered that, you know, this nobody, this Napoleon Bonaparte had been asking questions about her wealth. (laughs) So she was the one, she like made it into a big deal, and he, you know, eventually I think apologized. He must have, right? And all was eventually forgiven. And by March 1796, the pair were married. They got married in a low-key ceremony at their local registry office. Napoleon, however, was hours late arriving to the office. He finally appeared between 9 and 10 p.m., and the officiant who was originally going to conduct the marriage ceremony had already gone to bed. So Josephine had learned that although he did, I think, earnestly love her, Napoleon was always going to put his career and his ambition first. Now, her finances, not the only thing that Josephine's comfortable lying about. Um, In the marriage documents, Josephine lied about her own age. She took four years off her own age, and she increased Napoleon's by 18 months. So this would have made them both appear to be roughly around 29. Um, But again, she was 33 and he was 27. There were six years in between them. It's not a wild age gap by modern standards by any means. But at the time, this would have been, you know, it would have been raising some eyebrows. And this is one of the reasons that Napoleon's family took apparently an immediate disliking to Josephine. They saw her as an older, divorced woman with two dependent children and a spending problem. Now, Josephine's children, too, disliked their new stepfather. Eugène was holding the memory of his own father, the Viscount, um, as sacred. You know, he was a martyr to the revolution. And then Hortense, who I think was always very close to her mother, disliked this Napoleon Bonaparte. With He had these awkward manners, he wasn't very sophisticated, and he had an attitude. He was coming in and telling everybody what was what. It didn't really matter, though, because two days after the wedding, Napoleon was sent to lead the French army into Italy, where he again rose in the ranks. Now, this is not a Napoleon-centric episode. Um, In fact, it's the second episode now where he's really only a supporting character. And I think at this point, we should just keep it that way. So I will not, I'm not the person to ask about military campaigns or timelines of when he became what office. No, that's not, I'm not the expert on that. Um, You can find several, you know, wonderful podcasts and, and YouTube videos that will go through that for you. All you need to know for the purposes of this podcast (laughs) is that during his time spent fighting abroad, Napoleon continued to write Josephine effusive love letters. One from February 1797 reads, quote, you to whom nature has given spirit, sweetness, and beauty, you who alone can move and rule my heart, you who know all too well the absolute empire you exercise over it. That is quite a chilling, um, bit of foreshadowing in that letter, empire. (laughs) Josephine, for her part, she wrote back less often than Napoleon probably would have liked. And when she did, her letters were not nearly as warm. She was, um, I guess you could say busy and preoccupied with the numerous extramarital affairs that she was conducting back in France. Now, I do believe that she eventually became in love with Napoleon. She came to love him, but I think it took her a lot longer to reach the level of affection that um, he had for her. One of her biographers, um, Carolee Erickson, wrote of Josephine's romantic interests, quote, In choosing her lovers, she followed her head first, then her heart. 
meaning that she was going to identify men who were capable of fulfilling her needs, like financially, socially, before she was going to consider her feelings for them. So I think she was aware of Napoleon's potential when she introduced him to her social circles and then when she married him. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where love like officially entered the scene for her. It was there eventually, but I don't know if it was there in these beginning stages of their marriage. Um, Napoleon actually threatened to end the marriage, um, given her open infidelity back in France. Um, these might have been empty threats, given how obsessed he was with her. Um, but Josephine did, you know, come around and she managed to appeal to Napoleon's better nature, um, kind of using her plight as a widow, technically, even though she was legally separated from her first husband. Um, you know, saying, what about my children? They need a father, all of that, to keep him from ending the marriage then and there. Now, Carolee Erickson also interestingly writes that Josephine likely consulted one Madame Lenormand, known as the sorceress, for advice during this time. She was a psychic who advised, quote, all notables of the revolution, including Robespierre. The sorceress practiced several types of divination, including reading tarot cards. One can only wonder if she also read palms and whether the prediction from Josephine's childhood that she would become, quote, more than a queen for a short time was starting to maybe ring in the back of her mind again. We will pick back up and see where that prediction takes her right after this short break. And we are back, and a young Napoleon Bonaparte is still on his Italian campaign. He's also becoming increasingly influential in French politics. Traditionalists began warning that he was on the path to becoming a dictator. Spoiler alert, once again. <laughs> Undeterred, Napoleon's subsequent military campaign in Egypt, kind of the more famous one, I would say, brought him even more success and power. While he was in Egypt, Napoleon had the first of his own public affairs, including one with Pauline Foray, who was the wife of one of Napoleon's junior officers. She became known as Napoleon's Cleopatra. So this marked, um, I would say, a definitive shift in his relationship with jo Josephine, almost like they were each calling each other's bluff, saying, okay, well, if you can cheat, so can I. Um, and I'm wondering if this is where they kind of like realized, each of them realized that the other one was willing to be on their level and play games, you know, right back at them. While Napoleon was in Egypt, Josephine purchased an estate for herself, the estate of Malmaison, which was 12 kilom kilometers west of Paris. Um, and she developed it into a magnificent property with a garden um, where she kept botanical specimens from all over the world. She would consider this her home until her death. Upon returning to Paris, this is the point at which Napoleon is approached by powerful men and stages a coup d'etat, which overthrew the French government. So this, to make a long story short, led to him being crowned emperor at the Cathedral of Notre Dame on the 2nd of December, 1804. And I said he, he became crowned as emperor. Um, actually, Napoleon crowned himself <laughs> emperor. In the very famous painting of his coronation at the Louvre, you can see him already wearing the crown on his head, and he's holding another one over top of Josephine. Um, the service itself for his coronation was presided over by the Pope Pius VII, but Napoleon actually took the crown literally into his own hands, grabbed it from the Pope, and placed it atop his own head. This was a show of rejection of the clergy as the, you know, governing power in Europe. He was proclaiming himself to to be above all that noise. 
He then personally placed the second crown for the coronation on Josephine's head, proclaiming her his empress. Now, from here, Napoleon set out to install his family members in positions of power throughout his new empire, um, including um, his brother, oh gosh, Jerome. God, God love him. Jerome, another one from the Duchess of Baltimore episode, who became the king of, was it Westphalia? Something random. <laughs> he was a little inept, but he still got a kingship. Um, Josephine's own daughter, Hortense, at this point was married to, wait for it, Napoleon's brother, Louis Bonaparte. Yeah. In 1802, she became her own stepfather's sister-in-law. So that's weird. Um, Louis was made King of Holland, so at least Hortense became the Queen of Holland out of that deal. Josephine's son, Eugène, became Napoleon's loyal deputy and was later made a French prince. Not the Fresh Prince, a French prince, um, as well as Prince of Venice when Napoleon took that, and Viceroy of Italy and some other titles. The French nobility, for their part, had been through the ringer in the past two decades, and many of them had abandoned Paris and were not active on the social scene, to say the least. They had not really thought about, you know, what would happen if we had had to return to, like, a court life structure. So it was Josephine, the newly minted French empress, who kind of played her role through her social skills and enticed the French nobles to return to build out Napoleon's court. Of course, as all queen's consorts are supposed to do, she also revived some of the magic of the French court and promoted all things French. She would sometimes change her dress as many as four times a day to show off to visitors. But her role as empress was also kind of more like a first lady than a queen, um, given that her husband had to like continually court these dignitaries and keep public opinion as much on his side as he could because of his, you know, quick and um, undemocratic rise to power. Empress Josephine organized receptions, she entertained visiting dignitaries for him, and she often stood in for the emperor at official functions. Um, She was also a patron of the arts and of horticulture, commissioning numerous paintings and sculptures and cultivating new varieties of roses, um, most of that happening at Malmaison. She even influenced a new decoration in interior furniture with many items created especially for her. I've also seen a rumor, I haven't been able to dive too much into this, but I've seen a hint that she may have been um, a Freemason, like not just what are they called? An Eastern star, the wife of a Mason, but actually inducted into the order of Masons herself. Um, So that's interesting. Napoleon was busy kind of establishing the key hallmarks of his reign. He built, you know, the Bank of France, he built that up and he introduced the new franc, um, the currency, which lasted until the 1920s. Um, But one thing he could not establish with Josephine anyway, was a royal heir. It had become clear that Josephine, who was now age 46, could no longer bear children. And so thinking of securing his dynasty, Napoleon was advancing plans to divorce her. Now, the issue of Josephine producing issue, producing an heir, had actually been raised in quite a dramatic way um, before Napoleon and Josephine's coronation. While they were staying at the Chateau de Saint-Cloud, Josephine caught Napoleon in the bedroom of her new lady-in-waiting, Elizabeth de Vaudet. And in the ensuing argument, Napoleon threatened to divorce her due to her inability to get pregnant. Now, the civil code of France allowed for divorce, um, for the reason of not producing an heir, between the ages of 21 to 45. Josephine was older than that by this point. Um, 
maybe not if you went by the age on her marriage certificate. But you know, when your husband is the emperor, he tends to get his way. So he's looking for this legal avenue to divorce and what life would look like for him without Josephine as his empress. And it's not until 1807 that Napoleon seems to have reached like a definitive decision to divorce her. Um, Until then, his heir had been his nephew, Napoleon Louis Charles Bonaparte, who was the son of his brother Louis and Josephine's daughter, Hortense. Um, So yeah, this was also Josephine's grandson. (laughs) But this little boy... um, Um, Napoleon Louis Charles, he died of croup in 1807. He had been named Napoleon's heir before that. So now there was this gaping hole in Napoleon's shiny new imperial dynasty that he desperately needed to fill before he could feel secure. So it's said that neither Josephine nor Napoleon really wanted to like be divorced. And they both cried as the decision was made official. Um, It actually took Napoleon two more years to officially advance the proceedings. And he notified her at a dinner on November 30th, 1809, that the divorce would be going forward. A grand ceremony was held at court on January the 10th, 1810, um, to finalize the divorce. And when I say grand ceremony, like... The emperor and empress were both there and they both read statements of devotion to one another as their divorce became final. So Napoleon's, in part, read that, quote, Far from ever finding cause for complaint, I can, to the contrary, only congratulate myself on the devotion and tenderness of my beloved wife. She has adorned 15 years of my life. The memory will always remain engraved on my heart. He also assured Josephine that he would remain her best and dearest friend. Josephine, for her part, read out that acquiescing to the divorce should be seen as, quote, the greatest proof of attachment and devotion ever offered on this earth. And then a secretary had to read the rest of her statement as Josephine could not continue through her tears. So these are two people who are not divorcing for personal reasons. I think they got along fine once it was established that they could both have extramarital affairs. Um, It purely was because of Napoleon's ambition and his concerns for his dynasty that this divorce happened. And so that's, that's really sad. Now, those extramarital affairs, um, they are still part of the story here. Um, Napoleon had actually maintained a quite influential mistress, um, a Polish countess named Marie Walewska, Walewska, I don't know, I'm so sorry. Um, They had been together since 1807. um, And he had installed her in an estate of her own, essentially. Instead of kind of picking back up with her now, however, Napoleon knew that he needed to find a suitable foreign princess, Um, and that came to him in the form of 19-year-old Archduchess Marie-Louise of Austria, who he would go on to marry in 1810. Napoleon, again, by this time was at least 40 or 41. This marriage was strategically arranged by Marie-Louise's alarmed father, the Emperor of Austria, who had heard that Napoleon planned to marry a Russian archduchess, and that would leave Austria kind of sandwiched between a newly allied France and Russia. But when Napoleon withdrew his proposal to the Grand Duchess Anna Pavlovna of Russia um, after negotiations there took too long, (laughs) he instead turned to Austria. When Marie-Louise was informed by her father's counselors of the match that had been made for her, she apparently replied, quote, I wish only what my duty commands me to wish. So, you know, everyone here kind of has a very pragmatic view of this marriage, and Napoleon especially. Um, he once famously apparently remarked about Marie-Louise, quote, It is a womb that I'm marrying. 
Now, this second marriage for Napoleon was much more in line of what would have been expected of a European monarch in the 18th and 19th centuries. And by that, I mean it was A, not a love match, and B, to a princess, somebody of very high birth to secure, you know, an alliance between two countries. Um, Carolee Erickson, one of Josephine's biographers, even suggests that aside from the issue of producing an heir, Napoleon was also embarrassed of Josephine's kind of low birth, her non-royal status, um, and now he found her former position as a low-ranking, you know, French aristocrat very inappropriate for being the wife of an emperor. He was kind of ashamed of her. Quote, she was an embarrassment, an inconvenience, a hindrance. His French subjects were fond of her, but outside of France, she did not reflect well on him. So Marie-Louise, by contrast, could be treated like a capital R royal bride, maybe to play up Napoleon's own status. I mean, yeah, probably, definitely. (laughs) Marie-Louise was welcomed to France in 1810, ahead of her marriage, by Napoleon's sister, um, in a very similar ritual to what her great aunt and fellow Austrian Marie Antoinette had been put through when she arrived in 1770. You will know of this ritual if you've seen Sofia Coppola's um, film, Marie Antoinette, highly recommend. Um, But it kind of begins with Kirsten Dunst playing Marie Antoinette, being told that tradition dictates that a foreign bride must retain nothing belonging to her homeland, including her clothing. So accordingly, Marie Louise was stripped completely naked and given a bath overseen by Napoleon's sister before being redressed in French clothing and then deemed suitable to travel on to the French court. For all this pomp and circumstance, though, that's being given to Marie-Louise, up until this point, Napoleon had actually been trying to pull some strings so that Josephine, his divorced, you know, his ex-wife, could retain the title of empress. That's how highly I think he regarded her as a person. When it became clear that that wasn't going to work, um, he did create Josephine the Duchess of Navarre. um, So she was given a substantial income, around 2 million francs a year, and a castle in Navarre, which is in Normandy. So the two of them, they're maintaining this this friendship. They're remaining on good terms. Um, even though Napoleon once remarked, quote, the only thing that comes between us is her debt. Um, he still has no respect for Josephine because of how much money she spends. Josephine, upon hearing of this remark, um, was supposed to have quipped in private, the only thing that ever came between us was my debts. Yeah, certainly not his manhood. So a little spicy. <laughs> the new Empress Marie Louise, um, decidedly not spicy, <laughs> did have one thing from Napoleon that Josephine never really did, and that was his unwavering respect. Napoleon, like for all the affection that he still retained for Josephine, he, he did come to love Marie Louise, I think, and have some genuine affection for her. Marie Louise, the new Empress, was soft spoken and shy compared to the, you know, larger than life Josephine. Napoleon once characterized his relationship with his new empress by saying there was, quote, never a lie, never a debt between them. Some people have interpreted that to mean that the infidelity stopped um, on Napoleon's part after he married Marie-Louise. Um, he definitely gave up his long-term mistress, um, thinking that it would undermine his quest to secure a royal heir. And that's in contrast, of course, between the turbulent, adultery-ridden relationship that he had shared with Josephine. Marie-Louise also never interfered with Napoleon's politics or his ambition, whereas Josephine had literally met him (laughs) through political connections. Finally, in 1811, the emperor and his second bride welcomed his long-awaited son and heir. 
They christened the child Napoleon Francois Joseph Charles Bonaparte, and he was given the title King of Rome. Evidently, the birth had been difficult, and Napoleon remarked, quote, I had rather never have any more children than see her suffer so much again. So not only speaking, I think, to the care he has for Marie Louise, um, but also it's interesting that he like suddenly, you know, he's got his heir and he doesn't really care if there are any spares, <laughs> is what it sounds like, as long as he has this woman who has become his new empress next to him. Napoleon arranged, actually, for Josephine to meet um, the little prince, who had cost her, quote, so many tears when he was around two years old. But Napoleon himself made a promise to Marie Louise to stop visiting Josephine, um, so he now limited his interactions with her to letters. She did, however, keep his bedroom at Malmaison exactly as it had been during their marriage, um, and there was a story that a parrot in her menagerie had an annoying habit of shrieking out Bonaparte, Bonaparte to everybody who passed by. So that can't have been a fun um, reminder. Now, Josephine, once Napoleon stopped visiting her and those visits after their divorce, I think they were platonic. I don't think that they were romantically or sexually involved after that point. But once Napoleon was not visiting her anymore, Josephine became moody and withdrawn, even more so than she was just due to the divorce itself. And she could actually sometimes be found searching tarot spreads to make meaning out of her situation. In 1812, as Napoleon left for Russia to fight one of his wars, um, he did make one exception to his promise to Marie-Louise and visited Malmaison one last time for a long visit with Josephine. There's not really a record of, you know, what they discussed, how the visit went, but I think that was the last time that they saw each other again. Marie-Louise, not Josephine, would be named regent when Napoleon left the country, um, including when he left once again to fight the allied forces of Prussia and Russia in 1814. These allies were soon joined by Austria. Um, Napoleon was not able to bring his father-in-law, it seems, over to his side of the fight, and these allied forces would eventually become part of his downfall. When Napoleon was subsequently defeated, um, spoiler alert for the first time, he abdicated his throne on April 11th, 1814, and was banished to the Mediterranean Isle of Elba. Josephine at this time fled Malmaison for her um, estate in Navarre, and Empress Marie-Louise fled her residence at the Tuileries Palace and returned to Austria. Josephine would actually be summoned back to Paris not very long after, however, um, to play hostess to dignitaries visiting the new regime of King Louis XVIII, who, again, long story short, had restored the monarchy and taken the throne in Paris. The new king actually viewed Josephine as the real deal, even if Napoleon hadn't, um, but she had this ability to enthrall and court high society, um, while Napoleon, in the king's mind, had been like nothing but a pretender. He much preferred Josephine. So back in Paris at Malmaison, she now entertained courtiers once again and even received Tsar Alexander of Russia. But by this time, her health was failing. She had grown really frail and thin, and Josephine died of tuberculosis a few months after returning to Paris on May 29th, 1814. Her last words, purportedly, were Bonaparte, Elba, the King of Rome. Now, Napoleon, who was still exiled on Elba when he heard of Josephine's death, apparently locked himself in his rooms for two days after hearing the news, and he carried her portrait with him until he died. 
In March 1815, Napoleon escaped his island exile, and he did return to Paris, where he regained support and reclaimed his title as emperor for a period known as the Hundred Days. Um, However, it wouldn't be long, (laughs) you know, 100 days. In June 1815, Napoleon was once again defeated for good by the Duke of Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo. He was exiled one more time, this time to the island of St. Helena from October 1815 until his death on May 5th, 1821. On his own deathbed at St. Helena, the great emperor's own last words were, France, the army, the head of the army, Josephine. Napoleon's last word, this great emperor, his last word before dying in exile was the name that he had bestowed upon, I think, the love of his life, Josephine. And so we have this extraordinary destiny that had been foretold way back on the island of Martinique, and it seemed to come to fruition. Josephine did indeed rise to become more than a queen, but only for a short time. And yet her extraordinary destiny, it doesn't really end here with the end of her imperial marriage or even her death. Her lineage would go on to populate the royal houses of Europe even to this day. And what I really love about that is it's mostly just Josephine's lineage, not Napoleon's. So um, Josephine's daughter, Hortense, her third son would become Napoleon III, reigning over the Second Empire from 1852 to 1870. But then Josephine's grandchildren through her son, Eugène, likewise had illustrious marriages all over Europe. Um, Her grandson, Maximilien de Beauharnais, married into the Russian imperial family and established a Russian Beauharnais branch. And Eugène's daughter, Josephine, married the king of Sweden, Oscar I. So as a result, Empress Josephine is a direct ancestor of all the heads of modern royal houses in Belgium, Denmark, Luxembourg, Norway, and Sweden. And many of those families claim to possess spectacular, just beautiful pieces of jewelry that were once owned by the erstwhile French empress. So I hope that gives you sort of, you know, a primer on the relationship between Napoleon and Josephine, complicated as it was. Um, so if you have seen Ridley Scott's Napoleon, if you haven't seen it yet, but you're planning to, keep keep these facts in mind. That's all I'm going to ask of you. Um, a really great source for this episode, which I did quote from a couple times, um, was Josephine, A Life of the Empress by um, Carolee, C-A-R-O-L-L-Y. I hope I'm spelling or saying that correct. Um, Carolee Erickson. That's a very good one that I would recommend. Of course, if you haven't yet, be sure to check out the supplemental images for today's um, episode over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, um, suggestions for future episodes, feel free to shoot me a DM on there or send me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Of course, be sure to follow me on my personal social media channels, Matta of Fact, M-A-T-T-A underscore of underscore fact, and tune in and hear me on the Lady Audacity podcast, um, which is linked in the episode description. And you can also, of course, subscribe to my newsletter, The Fascinator, um, which is going to be hitting with a very regular schedule going forward, which I'm excited about. So that's going to be it from me today. Um, Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next one. Thank you.